This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Thanks for your support on Patreon, James Corey. James Corey was a close personal friend and financier of Albrecht of Wallenstein, and he ensured that the monetary wheels of Wallenstein's military machine kept moving smoothly, at least for a time. This, of course, is all a lie, but if you would like me to lie about you, you know what to do. Head on over to Patreon. More about that later, but first, enjoy episode 35 of the 30 Years' War. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons, all to the Thirty Years' War. I hope you're all doing well and you're all keeping safe, and that you've forgiven me for taking last time off. It's been four weeks since we've delivered this episode, and I'm really looking forward to getting back into it. I'm still sitting on some really exciting news, and I will let you know all about it in due time, but in case you missed the memo, this podcast is officially nine years old, which is really ridiculous. It's it's crazy to think I've been doing this for nine years, and it's crazy to think some of you have been joining me for that entire time. If you're new here, I hope you won't be scared away. This is the 30 Years War. We are obviously on episode 35 at this stage, and we've got a lot still to cover, and we've covered quite a lot already. You can check out the book that goes along with the series if you like, but if you just want to stay tuned and listen in, that's cool too. So last time we actually looked at Albrecht of Wallenstein. We saw how he established himself as one of two generalissimos in the back pocket of the Catholic Imperialist Alliance group, and Count Tilly in the Catholic League was his counterpart. Wallenstein, as we learned, had built quite a power base for himself, mostly from the confiscated estates of rebels in his Bohemian homeland where he hailed from. In addition, Wallenstein also made himself indispensable to the emperor as one of his major lenders. With the land, money and titles all flowing in Wallenstein's favour, the next step for the man was a critical position in the command of Ferdinand's armies, and this was duly granted in 1625. Wallenstein was appointed to effectively defend the Habsburg hereditary lands from the incursions of Ernst of Mansfeld. Mansfeld being probably the most perennially unsuccessful commanders that the Winter King had, but still, Winter King couldn't afford to be a chooser, since he was, after all, a beggar. 
1625 was the year of establishment for both Wallenstein and the King of Denmark, Christian IV. Both figures moved into position and they rallied their forces and signed the necessary deals. 1626, then, would be the year to prove oneself, and neither the King of Denmark nor Wallenstein could afford to disappoint. Christian would have to show that he had more than a decent chance of total triumph if he wanted greater subsidies or the promise of military aid from his allies in the Hague Alliance, who had shown themselves a bit reckless in their own ventures, a bit hesitant to follow through on their promises to boot. Wallenstein, meanwhile, had a great deal to prove himself, since the rumours were already following him and the pressure was on to show that the Emperor had not trusted him in vain. This episode here, then, basically sees these two characters collide, and if you want more background information on them, make sure to check in those previous episodes, because I know it's been a long time and keeping up with all these characters can be a bit much at times. So here we're going to examine how both men came to the rescue of their respective causes, how they faced their own challenges, disappointments and successes, and how, of course, this impacted the wider conflict, the Thirty Years' War. Without any further ado then, I'll now take you to early 1626. They will see the beginning of a revolution. This was how Frederick V, the dispossessed Elector Palatine, had described the gathering forces of the Hague Alliance, as 1625 turned to 1626. The revolution, which Frederick had envisioned, involved the gradual accumulation of forces hostile to the Habsburgs, as all rivals put their differences aside and combined against the Holy Roman Emperor and the King of Spain's dangerous designs. Frederick imagined the Swedish and Danish kings putting aside their old wars and pooling their resources in the Baltic. He hoped for the King of France to fight against the Spanish and Austrians in the name of Protestant Germans. He believed that these Protestant Germans could not but join his cause after having seen the extent of their emperor's unconstitutional behaviour and his wanton ambitions. Frederick had hoped for these things to take place ever since he had entered his exile in The Hague, and he had been disappointed as many times as he had hoped. This time, though, the anti-Habsburg camp appeared to possess the advantage in every respect. His years of pressuring the British to fight in Europe paid off, and King Charles I declared against Spain and the Emperor in mid-1625. The Dutch, brought low by their defeats to the Spanish, above all the Siege of Breda, where the Spanish succeeded, formalised their agreements with both France and Britain in the preceding years, and they all seemed poised to fight for as long as was required. Finally, and the reason why we're here, the King of Denmark, having at last acquired the solid alliance he had for so long sought, was now firmly set against the Emperor and he was loud in his determination to defend the Lower Saxon Circle, that region just below Denmark, against the Habsburgs. The unification of the anti-Habsburg camp into the Hague Alliance in December 1625 must be seen as the high point of Frederick's fortunes, as well as the high point of his pressure campaign. For so long, he had engaged in the apparently futile task to restore justice to the Palatinate and peace to Germany on his own terms, and now... This task seemed to have borne fruit. Alas, while Frederick's diplomatic triumph was impressive on paper, it was far less solid in reality. 
The German princes, save those that inhabited the Lower Saxon Circle, were still hesitant to declare against the emperor. Saxony had not been willing to turn against Ferdinand, even while its elector John George had regretted the unconstitutional manner with which the emperor stripped Frederick of his electorate, and John George also loathed the spectacle of Ferdinand betraying his promises and expelling Protestants from Bohemia, even after promising not to. As reluctant as John George was to take these objections to their logical conclusion and oppose the emperor by force, he was constrained nonetheless to remain on the emperor's side for one key reason above all others. Like the newly established Elector of Bavaria, John George of Saxony had gained immensely from choosing the emperor's side. Lusatia, a province of the Kingdom of Bohemia, had been hastily transferred to him as the result had been crushed. Any restitution of the status quo, then, would surely strip John George of these gains, and like Maximilian of Bavaria, he was therefore forced to fight not just for the compromised constitution, but also for his own lucrative gains, which he feared would otherwise be stripped away. John George might have switched sides to the anti-Hausberg camp if these gains had been guaranteed, but his natural caution prevented him from doing so, at least until the forces of the Hague Alliance could prove their strength and achieve some lasting victory, which would make switching sides a safe prospect. Not until the stunning intervention of the Swedes, spoiler alert, would this state of affairs present itself. Until then, John George of Saxony was simply not willing to take the risk. His letters of protest to Vienna fell on deaf ears because Emperor Ferdinand knew full well that protesting was as far as the Elector of Saxony was willing to go. This behaviour generally makes John George of Saxony something of an inconsequential figure in the Thirty Years' War, because he cut neither the brave, defiant figure of Frederick, the Elector Palatine, nor the ruthlessly ambitious image of Maximilian, who stuck by Ferdinand's side basically till the end. Instead, John George of Saxony was just John George, the Elector of Saxony, the foremost Lutheran prince in the Empire. In later years, his moderation and caution would have the effect of making him something of a weather vane in the Empire, because when he did change sides, the news inferred that a truly revolutionary change was in the air. Then, Frederick's prophecy regarding the beginning of a revolution was actually realised, but in 1626, this revolution could not arrive so long as the majority of Germany refrained from taking the rebels' side. Caught in the crosshairs of the Habsburgs, the Lower Saxon Circle couldn't help but feel that they had been given the short straw throughout the early 1620s. Christian of Brunswick had rampaged through their lands, and the Emperor had sent them threatening messages inquiring as to why they hadn't stopped that rebel from recruiting or quartering his troops, as though they were capable of mustering a force which might enable them to have any say in the matter. Naturally timid, and wholly reliant on the policy of the Danish king, who held significant influence over them, the Lower Saxon Circle couldn't move without either his direction or protection. In early March 1626, having learned of King Christian IV's ratification of the Hague Alliance and believing in his convictions, the Lower Saxon Circle officially abandoned this caution, which had for so long distinguished them. In acting, they also abandoned something else, their neutrality. 
The Lower Saxon Circle, if you acquire yourself a map, you'll notice this, was geographically very far from the incendiary events of the Bohemian Revolt, and they were more concerned with and affected by events in the Baltic than with the constitutional feud between the Elector and the Emperor. Nonetheless, their efforts to remain aloof from the conflict had been in vain. By 1621, Christian of Brunswick had come to their lands, and the members of the circle were then caught between a rock and a hard place, as the Emperor made clear his displeasure and quartered Count Tilly on their borders in case they didn't get the message. Like John George of Saxony, the Lower Saxon Circle's different princes wished, above all, to be left alone. But unlike John George, not one of their individual members, weak in the grand scheme of the Empire's power rankings, had much of a choice. While containing such significant cities as Brunswick, Hamburg, Lüneburg, Lübeck and Bremen, some of these cities were themselves trapped between their loyalty to the Emperor as free cities and the power of the Danish king. Furthermore, there was the greatly declined but still notable influence of the Hanseatic League, one of the most remarkable confederations the world has ever seen. According to the historian Cornelius Walford in his article examining the topic, and the Hanseatic League is a fascinating entity. It was a medieval confederation of North German and Baltic trading cities which had been established at Lübeck. This confederation had competed in the past with the Danes, the English and the Dutch and it had once held considerable monopolies over Baltic trade. It is necessary to carry on navigation. It is not necessary to live, had been one of many Hanseatic proverbs which reveal to us precisely how focused upon commercial ventures even at the cost of personal well-being, that the towns of the Hanseatic League had been. The Reformation had reached the Hanseatic League as well, and added to the sense of identity which the individual cities felt. In spite of their size, they preferred independence to closer union, which made them proud and culturally distinctive, but also, you can probably see where this is going, vulnerable to a powerful invader. King Christian IV had already forced Hamburg to declare its loyalty to Denmark, or at least to his capacity as the Duke of Holstein, and the rivers Elba and Wieser, upon which the Hanseatic League had been so prosperous, were, by 1625, under the near-complete control of the Danish king. In an effort to take advantage of the decline of the Hanseatic League, some efforts were made by the Habsburgs in spring and summer 1625 to bring the vestiges of that league over to its side as part of a wider scheme to extend Habsburg power to the Baltic, and these schemes would grow in the years to come. The plot misfired owing to the weakness and jealousy of the Hanseatic League members, which contained only a handful of cities that were capable of taking part in such an ambitious scheme. Those powerful cities that remained wished to conserve their independence rather than risk ruin in an alliance with the Habsburgs. In spite of this lack of progress here, and the clear message which its failure sent to Vienna and Madrid, in later years, as we said, the idea would be resurrected again. The legacies of history aside, neither the shadow of the Hanseatic League nor the Lower Saxon Circle, which housed its core German cities, would be strong enough to face down the might of the Holy Roman Emperor alone, especially considering the demonstrably harsh penalties which any losers would be forced to endure should their desperate fight fail. For this reason, neutrality was the preferred option, 
But the Lower Saxon Circle is one of the most glaring, though by no means the first or final example, of a region being forced to choose between God or the devil. Unfortunately for the Circle's peasants, traders and city fathers, their dilemma was of little concern to either party. Emperor Ferdinand, for his part, had already mapped out the succession of his sons to its many bishoprics. A crushing victory over the circle would simply guarantee that he could have whatever bishoprics he desired. It was to defend similar appointments which King Christian of Denmark had made for his sons that the Danish monarch marched. In a mandate communicated on the 4th of March, 1626, the Lower Saxon Circle officially communicated its intention to arm for the safety of its people. For the sake of providing us with a window into the psyche of the Lower Saxon Circle, it's worth detailing that mandate here, and we're going to do so now. It read as follows. The worthiest, serenest, worthy, serene and well-born princes and estates, etc. of the worthy Lower Saxon Circle are in no doubt that it will be well known both within the Holy Roman Empire and beyond that their highnesses, the prince and estates, have been compelled by the most pressing circumstances to establish a defence force in accordance with the authority and guidelines of the Holy Imperial Executive Ordinances and Recesses and that they have not only agreed this, but have immediately informed his Roman Imperial Majesty, our most gracious Lord, as well as others, to avoid all mistrust and suspicious thoughts and hostile impressions, and have done this properly in writing from an upright, open German heart to say that such a force is purely defensive and not to harm his Roman Imperial Majesty, the Holy Empire or its electors, princes and estates, but entirely and singularly for the protection and defence of this worthy Lower Saxon Circle, and to be used as a highly necessary assistance for the hard-won liberty in religious and profane matters, together with the traditional exercise of the Augsburg Confession as the highest jewel that princes and estates in this world could have, as well as to ward off all threatening developments and hostilities. How about that for a conglomeration of run-on sentences? But there's another important point that's referred to here. The Augsburg Confession referred to the definition of the Protestant religion in 1530, and the fear that this creed was in danger permeated this mandate. The general tone of fear permeated it as well. We should also note another tone. There was an almost crippling desire by the Lower Saxon Circle not to offend anyone, least of all the Emperor, since Ferdinand had sent his share of stern messages and warnings to the Circle in the past. Next, we see the mandate declaring its legitimacy by reasoning that the decision to arm had been taken by other powers too. It said, This is also a path that other princes and estates have followed since the start of the imperial reign of his Roman Imperial Majesty, and those of this circle do so with due devotion, love, loyalty and obedience, and will insist to their graves and for all eternity that such an upright German declaration of the circle will neither harm nor offend anyone in the slightest. Next, we are provided with a brief history lesson by the mandate, as the circle's members attempt to explain their dilemma and thereby justify their decision to arm. The summary provides us with a stark reminder of the devastation caused by the Emperor's armies to his own lands and people, behaviour which was certainly equalled by the Emperor's rivals in the years to come. 
The sense of despair which was felt by the Circle is palpable in this mandate, since on the one hand, we feel its members desperately wished to remain on the Emperor's good side, but at the same time, on the other hand, they had to defend themselves against future attacks launched in the Emperor's name. As the mandate continued, In July of last year, 1625, the Bavarian and League Lieutenant-General, Count von Tilly, followed by Albrecht of Wallenstein, the Duke of Friedland, with their large armies, invaded the said circle, first in the worthy Principality of Brunswick, then in the Archbishopric of Magdeburg, and the Bishopric of Halberstadt, and violently attacked fortresses, cities, towns, villages and noble houses, occupied and plundered them, not sparing the churches and houses of God, tyrannically stole not only the property and means of subsistence of many thousands of innocent subjects and their wives and children, but also in many cases their honour, bodies, lives and health, and burnt a great number of beautiful houses, villages, monasteries, farms and mills, and other buildings to the ground, and in short, behaved so gruesomely in the circle that one would not have expected the same from the hereditary and arch-enemy of all Christianity. After having detailed the devastation inflicted by their emperor, next it was insisted that all such activities had been undertaken solely to remove the Augsburg Confession, that is, to remove the Protestant religion from the region, and to restrict or abolish the German liberties which accompanied it. It read, And all this occurred with no more reason than blatant pretexts that were used to disguise the long-held intention to exterminate from the reformed archbishoprics and bishoprics of this circle the Augsburg Confession, that is the sole means of salvation, the godly, precious, true religion. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Such procedures not only grossly violate the proper and traditional liberty in religious and profane manners, but also completely contravene the holy imperial fundamental laws and constitution 
and stamp on all legal order together with German liberty. The mandate then ends with an instruction twinned with a warning for all soldiers serving either in Tilly's or Wallenstein's army to leave them immediately and not to fight against the lawful recruits of the Lower Saxon Circle. Those that disobeyed this mandate's instruction would be liable, we are told, to the most severe penalties. This reveals much about the regionalist mindset of the Circle's members, as well as the illegitimacy which they attached to the two armies commanded by both Count Tilly and Albrecht of Wallenstein. The mandate concluded. Therefore, the princes and estates of this worthy Lower Saxon Circle to save their Christian conscience through this public notice and letter, hereby remind and warn on their lives, honour and property all officers, horsemen and soldiers who are serving in both opposing armies and who are bound by vassalage of other duties to a prince and a state of this circle to leave both opposing armies as open enemies of the circle within a month of this present date and go home. If they fail to do so, and continue to serve against the worthy circle, they are expressly warned that the natives amongst them will be punished without restraint on their bodies, honour and property, with the loss of all rights and jurisdictions, while the foreigners will be treated as unchristian persecutors of their fellow believers, and will be granted no quarter. While providing us with a fascinating and appropriate window into the struggles which Germans everywhere grappled with, the aim of the mandate was a failure. The Emperor's armies would not turn back, and neither could the King of Denmark. Though they hadn't wanted the war and they loathed the idea of picking a side, the war had spread to within their borders nonetheless, and now this diverse group of German towns, princes, cities and bishoprics would be forced to choose whether they liked it or not. Grave though this choice seemed, the prospects for success were, at least, not all gloomy by the time this mandate was sent in early March 1626. By that time, after all, the Prince of Transylvania marched in cooperation with the Hague Alliance. He had mobilised his diplomats and, as usual, he promised great things to his receptive allies. If he was only given 40,000 Reichsthalers a month, Bethlen Gabor of Transylvania promised to maintain an army of 8,000 foot and 12,000 horse, which he would lead to Bohemia and Silesia and then link up with Ernst of Mansfeld. By combining their forces, Bethlen and Mansfeld would pose a formidable threat to the Habsburg position in Hungary, but the prince didn't stop there. As if anticipating the future diplomatic shenanigans, Bethlen Gabor advised that the King of Poland should be distracted by employing the Muscovites, in other words, the Russians, to strike against her. This initiative could also enlist the aid of the Tartars in Crimea, who would supply tens of thousands of horsemen for the common cause. All that was required to bring this incredible plan to fruition was money. Lots and lots of money, supplied by the members of the Hague Alliance, but mostly, it appeared, by King Charles of Britain and the Dutch. Christian of Denmark gave his assent to the scheme, but since he was already in receipt of subsidies himself, he was in no position to play the role of paymaster to the Prince of Transylvania. Furthermore, Christian had been occupied enough by the events of 1625 and his near-death experience when he'd been thrown from his horse into a big ditch slowed his overall progress to evict the forces under Tilly from the Lower Saxon Circle. Instead, Tilly's army and King Christian's army had engaged in limited skirmishes against the other, 
but it seemed clear that 1626 would be the year when the most weighted engagements occurred. Christian was anxious to defend the Lower Saxon Circle against Habsburg encroachment, since his power as Duke of Holstein, the inheritance of his sons, and the maintenance of the Lutheran creed would all be in jeopardy if he could not. We're going to continue with this episode, History Friends, but before we do, I want to let you know of something pretty cool. In case you were not aware, Poland is Not Yet Lost is a series that's been running concurrently to this 30 Years War series, and we just reached a pretty cool point in our narrative, where Frederick the Great enters the scene and attacks Silesia and seizes it and starts the War of the Austrian Succession and makes Maria Theresa of Austria very upset indeed. Maria Theresa of Austria is actually the descendant of the Ferdinand, Emperor Ferdinand we're talking about here, so it's pretty cool to see these stories kind of continue on in that sense. Even though the actors change, the houses pretty much remain the same, and the stories themselves remain very fascinating indeed. There's a lot to wrap your head around with the story of Poland in the 18th century, and we're by no means finished it yet, and it could take us a long time yet to actually finish it. But if you would like to listen in and you'd like to learn more about the major players at stake, then be sure to check out Poland is Not Yet Lost. All you have to do is go over to Patreon and pay a fiver a month in order to get access to it. By paying that fiver, you'll also get access to ad-free episodes of the regular 30 Years War programming. So if you'd like to hear no more of these ads in the future for the rest of your life, then that fiver will, of course, go a long way. I do have additional plans to make that fiver go even further, and those plans will be revealed once I drop several bombs on you in the months to come. But you should know that it is good value, and the content is part of a really fascinating story that I've really enjoyed telling for the last year or so. So, if that sounds good to you, click on the link in the description below. Patreon basically helps me keep this show going. It is a really important source of income for me as I wade through the PhD, and it has to this point ensured that basically Anna and I can continue to live as normal people and not super stressed people who are trying to support their husband doing a PhD, if that makes sense. I really appreciate the support and generosity so far. It's really been amazing, and it really does warm the cockles of my heart to see how much you guys have mobilize your forces much more effectively than the King of Denmark ever did to make this podcast and make the experience of doing a PhD so much better than it otherwise would have been. You're the best and I can't thank you enough. But let's get back to the narrative. Unfortunately for King Christian IV of Denmark, the Hague Alliance was already in danger and his allies were already in debt to him. To put it in perspective, by May 1626, so two months after that mandate had been delivered by the Lower Saxon Circle, King Charles of Britain would already be in debt to the Danes to the tune of £240,000, a result of the terminal inability of Charles's kingdom to pay the subsidies that had been promised. According to Frederick's ambassador in London, King Charles simply lacked the money required to pay and further problems abounded in his kingdom. The Duke of Buckingham, his favourite, was becoming increasingly unpopular, to the point that Parliament stonewalled any talk of raising subsidies for foreign wars, so long as he would not be impeached. Frederick regretfully noted that The revulsion in the land against the Duke of Buckingham is so great that it hinders much good. And he was correct. 
Not only would Charles's Parliament refuse to grant him the necessary funds, but public opinion was also splintering over the deepening crisis in France, where the French government attempted to crack down on the rebelling Protestant Huguenots in a crisis that would drag on for several years. France's foreign minister at this point, a figure you might have heard of, Cardinal Richelieu, was indeed in something of a bind. A great strategic coup had been achieved in the spring of 1625, when the Duke of Savoy had occupied the Valteline mountain passes with French assistance. The Valteline is known today for its great skiing holidays and hot springs, but in the 17th century, this valley pass in Lombardy, along the border with the Swiss, formed a critical artery along which the Spanish roads traffic flowed. This initiative of seizing these passes had been planned as per the Treaty of Paris from two years before, which had committed Venice, France and Savoy to expel the Spanish from the Valtelline and block the Alpine passes to the Habsburgs. Lombardy, a Spanish possession in North Italy, was anchored on the Italian powerhouse of Milan, which was a hub of Habsburg Italian ambitions, which also included Tuscany in its net. The Spanish supported the Milanese and the French supported the Duke of Savoy, and both sides quarrelled over the pieces of territory which were held in between. In later years, one such piece, Mantua, would actually cause a proxy war between the French and Spanish, and it would have profound implications for the Habsburg position in Europe. But in 1625-26, talk of the region was consumed by the French-sponsored severing of the Valtelline. The complex conflicts between the inhabitants of the region and their neighbours need not detain us now. It suffices to note instead that with the Valtelline out of Spanish hands, Madrid simply could not move men or money through its Spanish road up to the Spanish Netherlands or to the Rhine. Even worse for Spain, with England entering the war against her in mid-1625, the prospects of supplying these same regions by sea became still more remote. With the lifeblood of Spain's European empire reduced to a trickle, the impact on its soldiers and power projection would begin to tell. Furthermore, so long as Spain couldn't properly harness its colonies or move its resources, it couldn't support the emperor either. This was recognised by Ferdinand, and he chose to lean more heavily on the likes of Wallenstein in order to compensate. The urgency of the disaster was plain, and not for the last time, Spanish planners worked to liberate the passes from the French, but by the following year, domestic affairs in France worked in their favour. The prospect of Huguenot rebellion had never seemed distant in France, but its eruption in 1625 and the subsequent worsening of France's domestic situation forced Cardinal Richelieu to make some tough choices. One of these, as it transpired, was the evacuation of French troops in the Valteline to defend the French crown. This event took place in the spring and summer of 1626, about the kind of time period we're at now with the Danish War, and it demonstrated the interconnected nature of European strategy and politics. Because the Spanish road, having been closed for about a year, was suddenly open once again just at this point in spring 26, Madrid could reconnect itself to its bastions in the Spanish Netherlands and on the Rhine. Not until the Huguenot fortress of La Rochelle was captured in 1628 did Cardinal Richelieu possess anything close to a free hand to intervene in the empire, and thus, between 1626-28, France effectively withdrew itself from external affairs, 
a development which seemed to spell disaster for King Christian IV of Denmark, as well as for the Dutch. Despite his original intention to defend the Habsburg hereditary lands, and in particular his extensive land holdings in Bohemia from the wandering excesses of Ernst of Mansfeld, in April 1625, Wallenstein's job description was given a significant upgrade. Wallenstein was to be chief over all our troops already serving at this time, whether in the Holy Roman Empire or in the Netherlands, and Ferdinand ordered him to create a field army, whether from our existing units or from newly raised regiments, so that there shall be 24,000 men in all. This hulking force marched towards the Lower Saxon Circle in August 1625, when King Christian convalesced from his terrible fall. Wallenstein's arrival and his quartering in the fringes of the circle near Count Tilly's forces promised ruin for the circle's inhabitants, and according to the above mandate, ruin was the sentence which was duly carried out. We have apportioned space to the discussion of this terrible ruin in later episodes, so for now it's sufficient to note that Wallenstein and Tilly spent the winter of 1625-26 in close proximity, before Wallenstein moved on to intercept Mansfeld. The pressure was certainly heavy on both sides, but Wallenstein possessed a key advantage of outnumbering his opposite, and Mansfeld, taking for granted the experience of his troops, squandered his first encounter with the enemy, as he had all others. Dessau Bridge was the name of Wallenstein's first and arguably most important triumph. The elimination of the bulk of Mansfeld's army in this battle along the Elbe River on the 25th of April 1626 was catastrophic for the fortunes of the anti-Hausberg cause, but it was business as usual for Mansfeld, who responded to the defeat by venturing down south towards the Adriatic. Apparently imbued with a mission to recruit Venice and the Turks to his cause, Mansfeld caught a bout of the plague and died in November 1626. His death marked the departure of one of the most significant representatives of the cause of Frederick, but it was not the final death of such a representative in that final year. Christian of Brunswick, an optimistic third prong of the anti-Hausberg cause, had been caught and defeated in detail over the summer while attempting to outmaneuver Tilly along the River Vaser. Prematurely aged, the 28-year-old Christian appeared much older than his actual years, and this additional defeat proved to be the final nail in his surely frail constitution. He died in Wolfenbüttel in mid-June 1626, and upon further investigation, according to Catholic sources, it was supposedly discovered that Christian of Brunswick's vitals had been consumed by a single, gigantic worm. Probably a metaphor for something or other. The previous month, in May 1626, the Habsburgs and their allies sent representatives to a conference in Brussels that were aimed at accelerating cooperation between the two branches of the dynasty. As had occurred before, disagreement reigned. The emperor's representative wanted the Spanish to intervene in force against the Danes. The Spanish wanted the emperor to send forces against the Dutch and to declare war against the Dutch. Further conflict was engendered between Spain and Bavaria, as the Spanish wished to use the Lower Palatinate as a peace offering to entice England to the negotiating table. For this to occur, they required the Bavarians to evacuate the territory, which Maximilian of Bavaria, of course, refused to do. Any overarching Catholic alliance 
failed to materialise on the base of these disagreements. Despite the considerable successes Madrid had enjoyed in 1625, there was no desire to enter the war with Denmark, particularly as the conflict with England raged on. A silver lining had been the ratification of the Treaty of Monzon in March, which had made official the temporary Franco-Spanish détente and the French evacuation from the Valtelline. Through this agreement, France confirmed its intention to abandon the Hague Alliance, destroying any possibility that King Christian of Denmark would be propped up by French subsidies in the process. Thus, even while they wouldn't wage war against Denmark, and even though Spain couldn't persuade the Emperor to make war on the Dutch, the Inter-Hasburg cooperation had again produced critically important fruit. The Danish king, once so threatening, was now more isolated than ever. The axe finally fell on King Christian's hopes and dreams during the Battle of Luther on the 26th of August 1626. It was there that Count Tilly proved his worth for the Catholic Habsburg cause once more, as his forces shattered the Danish-German army in a single battle and blunted Christian's offensive capabilities for good. Christian fled back to Denmark with the Catholic League in hot pursuit. The defeat of Christian's forces granted the Catholic League something akin to free reign in the Lower Saxon Circle, and the very unfortunate inhabitants of the region who had so feared this exact outcome were to suffer much from the demands of the invader over the next few years. The defeat of Christian's forces was as shattering as that of Christian of Brunswick had been during the Battle of Statlon almost exactly two years before. Much like his Danish namesake, over 1621-23, Christian of Brunswick had endeavoured to rally the Lower Saxon Circle to his side, but his defeat had fostered anxiety and timidity among them in the aftermath. This had momentarily passed with King Christian of Denmark's arrival, but now that he was also defeated, there seemed no great defender of the Protestant cause in place. It remained to fall at the mercy of the Emperor and the Invader, and hope against hope for the best outcome. By August 1626 then, with the major armies of the anti-Habsburg cause defeated, and two of the major antagonists of the Habsburgs actually dead, the Hague Alliance had apparently been smothered in its cradle. Worse for the enemies of the Habsburgs, the English were distracted and penniless, the French had succumbed to their Huguenot rebellion and were unable to help, and the Valtelline was open to Spanish traffic, so it appeared, for good. 1626 is almost certainly a high-point year for the Habsburgs, and a rewarding one, personally, for Emperor Ferdinand. On the other hand, news of these decisive defeats, after hopes had been raised so high, cannot have been easy for the exiled Frederick to endure. Somehow he maintained his composure, and worked against all currents to maintain some semblance of the anti-Hasburg group. These defeats, while unbearably bitter pills, were merely trials in his walk of faith, and he couldn't abandon this walk now, nor ever. So long as he lived, so did the resistance to the Habsburgs, and so did this righteous cause. In the next episode, we'll look at how Emperor Ferdinand wished to solidify his triumph by mopping up the last vestiges of resistance that remained. Meanwhile, as his enemies quaked, his allies marched, and Wallenstein, more perhaps than any other, was determined to have a role in what happened next. I hope you'll join me for that, history friends and patrons, but until then, my name is Zach, and this has been episode 35 of the 30 Years War. Thanks so much for listening to and supporting this show. You're the best, and I'll be seeing you all 
soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. 